Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Ernesto Caravantes, who is author of Clipping Their Own Wings. Today we will discuss his book. Ernesto Caravantes is a native Angelino who grew up in Lakewood, California, the only son of Mexican immigrant parents. His parents had a profound impact on his choices and accomplishments in his life and instilled a deep sense of wonder and pride in his Mexican roots. They also emphasized the value of education in the United States. On a visit with his parents to the meat markets of Los Angeles, the impressionable boy saw firsthand how beleaguered and unassimilated the Hispanic population had become in California. Latino immigrants were living in Los Angeles as if they had never left their native country, still poor, still uneducated, and laboring at menial, low-wage jobs with a stubborn resistance to learn English. Ernesto is an instructor of culinary history and psychology at the California School of Culinary Arts in Pasadena, California. Prior to that, he was host of Dialogue, a cable television talk show in Glendale, California. He received a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from California State University at Long Beach, California, and a Master of Science degree in Counseling from the University of Laverne. Ernesto, welcome. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I know that you have dedicated a lot of your time and interest to the topic of education in general and education as it relates to Latinos in particular in the United States, of course. Would you paint a picture for us? What are we looking at and what does it mean? Elena, I have been studying the educational trends in the United States of certain minority populations for about a decade now. And for many years, I'd become troubled by what seemed to be a singular pattern of dropping out in disproportionate numbers among Latino students. By the time I was in graduate school, I decided to write my thesis on what was clear to me to be the cultural factors that were beginning to affect Latinos. I felt that no one was properly addressing the role of culture uh, in this whole debate. Uh, so often in the news, in the, in the media, in the newspapers, we, we read reports about uh, teachers having 35 to 40 students in one classroom and uh, teachers being overwhelmed and the school budget cuts affecting the school districts. And I think that all of these factors are very relevant and need to be included in the debate. But what caught my attention was that nobody seemed to be focusing on the culture itself. Was the culture itself contributing to this problem? And in doing a lot of the research, a lot of the circumstantial evidence, uh, the sort of the overwhelming picture that I was getting was that, yes, indeed, the culture was contributing uh, to this trend. What kinds of numbers are we looking at in terms of education? And, of course, we're talking about high school and college education, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Do you have any data that you could share with us in terms of overall numbers of students in the U.S. and percentages of Latinos from those groups? Yes, I do. In uh, the year 2000, about 530,000 Hispanic 16- to 19-year-olds were high school dropouts, yielding a national dropout rate of 21.1% for all Hispanic 16- to 19-year-olds. This is according to the U.S. Census Bureau in 2003. 
the Latino youth dropout rate was more than three times greater than the 2,000 non-Hispanic white alone dropout rate of 6.9%. Now, of course, when we look at the dropout rate, one of the, the questions that will come up, and, and I think it's a very valid question, and researchers such as myself need to be careful with this, is how do we define dropouts? Uh, furthermore, are these U.S.-born or are these immigrant students? Now, for that data that I gave you from the 2003 U.S. Census Bureau, many of the 530,000 Hispanic high school dropouts uh, were recently arrived immigrants who had never been enrolled in U.S. schools. Now, they meet the status dropout definition, but that does not imply that they necessarily dropped out of U.S. secondary schools. Using the 2000 census survey data, it is estimated that about 175,000 of the 530,000 Hispanic high school dropouts were likely never enrolled in U.S. schools. So when we look at this data, we have to break it down. Are these students that were born and raised in the United States, or are these immigrant students? And with that uh, data in particular, about one-third were immigrant students, and two-thirds were born in the United States. Uh, in one of the most recent cohort studies that was done, uh, called the National Educational Longitudinal Study, or the NELS, which tracked 1988 eighth graders, 14.3% of Latino youth had dropped out as of 1994, compared to 5.7% of non-Hispanic white youth. So clearly, no matter how the data is interpreted, uh, the Latino population is still coming out with the highest dropout rate of any ethnic population. Furthermore, it was found that regardless of how dropping out is defined, first, second, and third, and higher generation Hispanic youth drop out of school at similar rates. And that was something that I found particularly, uh, particularly disconcerting because of the fact that uh, there seemed to be no improvement with subsequent generations born in the United States. One can very easily, of course, imagine that an immigrant who comes to the United States with limited English proficiency and a lack of understanding of the educational system of this country would be at a disadvantage. But what the data is clearly showing is that even their U.S.-born children and even second and third generation are not improving. And that's why I think that uh, research, such as the one that I've included in my book, uh, needs to be brought out into the public forum. Has anybody looked closely at the reasons behind this, other than language, of course, and cultural differences, which you mentioned, has anybody identified causal relationships that are affecting these dropout rates in general and more specifically throughout the different generational groups that you mentioned? Well, I think this, this brings me back to the, uh, the thesis in my first book, Clipping Their Own Wings which is the fact that my proposition is that every cultural group in the world, every ethnic group, every population, is going to have a hierarchy of values. Now, what I mean by that is that every culture is going to define for itself, and sometimes this is not even openly stated, this could be implicit or tacit, but I believe that every culture has a list of things that it considers important. And I think they are rank-ordered, you know, from the very top, which would be the most important things that are important to that culture, followed by the second and third and fourth 
and so on of things that are important. And I think in doing a lot of the reading on the Latino population, I think that for them, family solidarity is probably one of the most important cultural factors that are important to them. Um, keeping the family intact, uh, honoring their cultural traditions would probably be the second most important. Uh, maintaining close family ties to families still living in Mexico or any other Latin country that they came from, I think is probably the third most important. And so when we really look at culture, I think what begins to uh, become evident is the fact that every culture is going to have the things that they consider the most important. And I think for the Latino population living in the United States, these things are more important to them than education. Now, it's not really for me or anyone else to judge uh, these things. It's, it is what it is. I think Latinos have a right to consider what they believe is most important to them. But clearly, education and going on to a four-year college or university and getting a college degree does not seem to be as important to them. Otherwise, the numbers would be looking very different. Um, and it's up to each population living in the United States to define for themselves what they consider important. And it's their right, ultimately, to enjoy those things. I mean, if for a, fact, for a Mexican family, if they want to uh, just continue uh, keeping the family intact and maintaining their cultural tradition and maintaining their cultural ties to Mexico, that is their perfect right. And it's, it's uh, not up to anybody else to legislate or mandate that they change their culture. But what happens is, when they put so many other things ahead of education, clearly their education is going to suffer as a result. If they put education at the fourth or fifth or sixth place on that list, clearly it's going to be neglected. And when it's neglected, they will drop out in higher numbers. And when they drop out, their future prospects are diminished. Their future income earnings are diminished. Uh, their ability to find a job is diminished. And ultimately, if these people end up, you know, dependent on the state and dependent upon uh, welfare or any other government programs, then the common taxpayer ends up bearing the brunt of this. So that's why I think that this is important. I think this is why it needs to be spoken about, because it is their right to enjoy their culture, but at the same time, they have to realize that there's going to be widespread repercussions uh, of a culture that does not emphasize education, uh, such as other groups do. For instance, uh, the Asian cultures that come here with very similar disadvantages, very similar linguistic and economic disadvantages, but end up doing remarkably well in education and end up becoming leaders in business and industry. This isn't just an issue that's affecting the Latino community in isolation. We know that from census data and projections, one out of every four students entering the school system in the United States now is Latino. We know that Latinos have a very young demographic, right? Yes. And so if one out of every four students is Latino, then this is part of the future of the country. It, this is something that relates to all involved, not just to Latino communities in isolation. You mentioned that this attitude toward education affects their prospects, their earnings, and their ability to get jobs. Do you have any data on that? Uh, the, the data overall are showing that the, the high school graduate, and especially the college graduates, the ones who go on to get a four-year college and university, actually end up earning 
hundreds of thousands of dollars more over a lifetime than those who only have a high school diploma and much, much higher than those who only have uh, a partially completed uh, high school education. So clearly the, the marketplace right now currently demands at the very least a bachelor's degree. And in many sectors of the, of the economy, such as the one that I'm in, which is education, uh, even a master's degree is necessary just to get your foot in the door, just to be able to uh, land some of the better paying positions. So clearly Latinos have to realize this. And, but there's another factor that, that has to be uh, thrown in here as well. Clearly the earnings uh, speak for themselves. Those who have a high school or a, and especially a university degree end up earning significantly more than those who do not. But the other thing that I think I find a little bit more troubling, and I think this is the thing that, that cuts across so many layers of culture, is the fact that for people like you and I as educators that are speaking to these groups, I think one of the, the things that has to change in the Latino mentality is not just the earnings, which are very real and much higher for those who have a degree, but to instill in this population a love of learning. I, I think that uh, one of the best-selling uh, books of all time, and I think the title says, uh, says it all, is Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. And I think that if Latinos were to develop a love of education and a love of learning, the earnings will follow. And absolutely, of course, uh, you know, the marketplace does reward someone with a, a four-year college uh, degree, and especially a graduate degree, and, and most particularly an advanced degree like a doctorate degree. But I think that if we could also develop in our, in our young people and these new generations a love of learning so that it's not just a carrot that they follow, because I think if we just use the approach of telling them how much more they're going to earn, then they're really not going to be motivated to go to a university for the very sake of learning. I think that the original purpose of a university of attaining a four-year liberal arts education was precisely to grow and expand and to be exposed to new ideas and new ways of thinking. And so uh, I think that, yes, it is important to mention the economic difference, and certainly Latinas will remain very poor if they do not go on to a college or university and get a degree. But I think that a love of learning and a love of reading and the expansion of one's mind and opening up oneself to the world is what ultimately a university is designed to do is something that I think we really need to get across to, uh, to young students these days. Ernesto, let's go back to the the original premise, which is the number of dropouts across the board and the multi-generational dropout rate that remains constant. Is there any data that looks more closely into the demographics? In other words, we, we know from what you're saying that different generations are affected by the same malaise, but are there, for example, countries of origin differences? Are there differences by gender? Are there racial differences? Is there any other breakdown that we can look at to help explain the very significant differences in attitudes toward education? Yes, that's an excellent question, and I'm glad you asked that. In my first book, Clipping Their Own Wings, I make it uh, very clear that the term Latino and Hispanic is 
are used both interchangeably, and they're both being used to highlight a demographic population in the United States that has become very diverse. As you mentioned, and you're absolutely correct, there are Mexican-Americans, there are Mexicans, there are Cubans, there are Puerto Ricans, there are Central Americans, there are South Americans. Uh, overall, the data have shown that Cubans and El Salvadorians are doing better than other Latino subpopulations. The Cuban population in particular is one that has, of course, as you know, uh, been slightly different in its demographics. Uh, many professionals left Havana uh, in 1959 after the uh, communist takeover by Fidel Castro. So the population that left Cuba for Miami was very, very different because of the fact that these were already university-educated professionals. So by the time they landed in Florida and ended up forming families and having children of their own, they already were aware of the benefits and lifestyle of being an educated individual. So it took little effort on their part to be able to uh, place their sons and daughters, uh, their U.S.-born sons and daughters, into uh, colleges and universities, not just in Florida, but all throughout the country, because of the fact that they knew what it was like uh, to be able to go to a university and they had all the uh, knowledge, all the requisite knowledge necessary to send a child off to a university. The other population that I mentioned is the El Salvadorian uh, group, which I think has, on the whole, had a much stronger commitment to education. Uh, and sometimes it is some, you know, a little bit tricky to clearly trace the singular source of where this higher commitment comes from. And of course, we can go back all the way to sort of uh, pre-colonial eras where we might have a stronger Spanish influence. And I suspect that in, in some cases that might be the case, where perhaps there was a much stronger European influence that had a uh, university connection, you know, handed down uh, an affinity for colleges and universities ever since those uh, early eras when the Central American populations were being uh, settled. But I think that overall, in the United States right now in 2007, the Mexican and particularly the Mexican-American population has been doing uh, most badly of any population. They're, they're at the bottom of the educational ladder. And that is why I decided actually to write a second book. My first book, as I just mentioned, deals with the population as a whole, the Latino, the Hispanic population in the United States. And while I do break down the, the different categories, still I was using a, a very sort of uh, broad and general term to describe a very uh, uh, heterogeneous population. So that's why my second book, which is entitled The Mexican-American Mind, is going to be focusing only on Mexican-Americans because this seems to be the most beleaguered of all the populations in the United States. And it is one of, certainly one of the largest. Uh, some of the data show that 60% of immigrants come from Mexico in the United States. Of all the Latino immigrants uh, coming into the United States, 60% are from that country. So therefore, as you mentioned, the, the population demographics are such that it's, it's difficult to ignore, and that's why I think we have to target uh, that population. And you mentioned gender, and I think that there are unique uh, gender challenges inherent in the data uh, and I think both boys and girls are facing somewhat slightly different uh, problems as they go through the educational system. I think for the boys, uh, truancy 
uh, delinquency, um, affiliation with gang culture, lack of mentors, uh, and not having an appropriate role model, a father uh, figure and role model in the home is affecting them greatly. For the females, not having someone to guide and coach them, I think their low self-esteem is particularly troublesome with the, uh, the Mexican-American females, uh, low sense of self-efficacy, um, wanting to feel needed and loved, and I think that sometimes that results in the, uh, the pregnancy rate that we see, which is particularly troubling with this population, and I think it deserves an entire book on its own because the uh, teen pregnancy rates are very, very high for Mexican-American females. So clearly, both populations have had um, challenges uniquely their own. For the females, for instance, uh, traditionally, females have not been given as much of an incentive to go on to a college and university uh, in the Mexican culture because it was assumed that they would find a man that would, they would find and marry a, a man who would, you know, help support them and, and provide for the family. So there was little incentive for the females to actually go on to a university themselves and have the, their very own career. Fortunately, we're, being, uh, we're beginning to see a little bit of a turnaround in that respect, but I think that we're a very long ways from seeing the ultimate changes that we would like to see in society. What does this all mean in the long term? We know that the growth in the United States is coming mostly in the coming years from U.S.-born Latinos, less so from foreign-born Latinos. As different groups of Latinos become acculturated and or assimilated, are these trends likely to change or, as you have mentioned, are they likely to stay the same in spite of the generational differences? Well, I think ultimately the, the patterns that begin to emerge within the coming decades is really in the hands of, of people like you and I, the, the common citizens, uh, educators, and educational leaders. I think if we're to see a big change in the progress that is being made, I think it's ultimately up to us to present this data precisely so that we can empower parents, we can empower students, and we can empower policymakers to ultimately put into action the very measures that are needed to bring about change. Uh, certainly the, the demographics have changed considerably. Uh, Latinos are now numbering between 30 and 35 million. Uh, as you mentioned, soon one in every four school children will be of, his, of his, some sort of Hispanic background. And they are now the largest ethnic population uh, in the United States uh, just after Caucasians. They have now outnumbered African Americans. So what kind of population we see is ultimately up to us to be able to bring about as, as a form of uh, social change and educational improvement. And I think it's still, there's still a wide uh, chance for so many of these populations to improve. This is why it's so vital that these messages be sent out over the airwaves, uh, into books, that these books be published, that these shows be broadcast on the radio, that these newspaper articles be put in the newspapers and on the inter internet and on podcasts precisely so that we can bring about a clear recognition of what's happening and then be able to turn it around. Where does the title come from, Ernesto? Clipping their own wings. Tell us about that. Well, I ultimately felt that clipping their own wings was 
the most appropriate one. Um, I had actually gone through several other titles, but I felt that Latinos were, in a sense, shooting themselves in the foot, which is the other expression that I was considering using, but I didn't feel it had the kind of um, sort of, um, you know, lyricism that the other expression has. Ultimately, the expression refers to the fact that Latinos are shortchanging their very futures. They are cutting themselves off from a better future by not going on to a college or university and pursuing degrees and advanced degrees in their field. I think that in our society, we require that. And, you know, we can, you and I might say that that's unfair or perhaps society should be different and we should value people for the intrinsic uh, intelligence that they have, or we should value street smarts and not so much book smarts, but ultimately that's how our society works. You know, for good or bad or, you know, for better or worse, that's how life in the United States is. We have to have a university education. That's what is valued. That's what the marketplace demands. You know, like the expression goes, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, and ultimately Latinos don't seem to want to be playing the game by the rules and getting ahead the way people need to get ahead in this country. So by not going on to a college or university and, or not even trying or dropping out or dropping out midway, they are really preventing themselves from having a much brighter future in the United States. So in choosing the title, I felt clipping their own wings was appropriate because just as a, a farmer uh, will clip the wings of a bird to prevent it from flying away. Uh, similarly, Latinos are doing that to themselves. They're literally clipping their very own wings and preventing themselves from soaring into the sky with a college degree. At the beginning of the book, you talk a little bit about your own journey of discovery in terms of education. Would you care to share a little bit about that with our listeners? Sure, absolutely. When I was a, when I was a child, I spoke mostly Spanish. Uh, my parents, just out of habit, sort of benign, neg benign neglect, uh, began to teach me mostly Spanish when I was a youngster, when I was an infant. So by the time I entered the first grade, I was actually quite behind in my English skills. And so by the time my, my skills had uh, begun to deteriorate because of the fact that I did not know English, my second grade teacher had a conference with my mother and she told her, look, you either teach Ernesto English or go back to Mexico. Clearly, I was at a crossroads. My, my parents were also at a crossroads. They had to realize that they had made a mistake in teaching me mostly Spanish at home. Fortunately, after that day, everything turned around, and I was taught only English at home. Everything was in English. The language that was spoken, television shows, uh, newspapers, everything was in English from then on. But it left an impression, and I can still remember very clearly, even to this day, being the last student to turn in the little assignment cards, being the last student to turn in you know, the work that needed to be done because I could not understand the language that well. I was behind, and, and this is a direct result of, of Spanish being favored over English at home. So it created such a strong impression, and I think that I think for most people, advocacy is born out of some sort of personal journey. So my personal journey was born out of knowing mostly Spanish and being behind in school and being very ashamed, of course, that I was behind and uh, being in the remedial English class and feeling very self-conscious. So by the time I started writing the book, I felt that this 
message needed to be brought across as many people as possible because it's such a widespread practice. You wouldn't believe the number of families who emphasize Spanish over English at home. They feel it's some sort of moral imperative that their children learn Spanish, as if some sort of evil will befall their children if they learn English first. I think that learning languages is very important. I think in our society and in our world, it's a very useful tool to be able to know more than one language. God knows now with the Internet, the globalization of the economy now demands that people be fluent in two or even three languages. But I think that if Latinos are to get ahead in the United States, the predominant language is English. And I think if Latinos, particularly Latino parents, do not understand this, they're going to be uh, at a dis putting their children at a disadvantage. And that's why I have actually become very uh, dubious uh, in my belief of bilingual education having any real long-term value. For instance, in Denver, 80% of students in bilingual programs fail to make significant progress towards learning English even after two years of bilingual education. Furthermore, 60% of children who are forced into bilingual programs already have English as their dominant language. And on top of that, polls show that overwhelming majority of Hispanics want their children to be taught academic subjects in English, not in Spanish. So part of my advocacy work has been to bring about this message of English. Now, there's nothing wrong with Latino youth learning Spanish, but I believe that these parents are putting their cart before the horse, and I think children should be taught and master the English language first. Then on top of that, they can learn Spanish, they can learn Italian, they can learn French, they can learn Russian, whatever language they want. But these students need to have a master of the English language first. And I think if we were to get students to have a thorough proficiency in English, it would help them across the board no matter in what, in what subject they're being taught. Even in math, a lot of the math problems are taught in English. They are word problems. So if the students are behind in, in their English skills, even their math, uh, aptitudes are going to be behind. One of the things that Latino parents don't realize is the fact that when their youngster reaches the age of uh, 15, 16, 17, they're going to begin taking some of these exams, particularly here in California, that have the, uh, the potential to either hold them back or allow them to progress. For instance, we have the, in the state where I live, here in California, we have the California High School Exit Examination, the CAHI. And the CAHI will test a student's proficiency in the English language. And nationally, we have national tests such as the ACT and the SAT, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, which likewise will test a student's uh, ability to master the English language, will test a student's proficiency in, in their vocabulary and their ability to read and comprehend questions based on the reading material they have just uh, read in a paragraph. So clearly these students are going to be at a disadvantage if they are thinking in Spanish because I think a lot of these students think in Spanish and can sort of get by in English, but their primary language is Spanish. You know, nothing, nothing I think disturbs me more when I'm out in the marketplace and I hear youngsters, uh, Latino youth, switching back and forth rapidly between English and Spanish. These are youngsters and these are even college students who believe that they are fully bilingual, yet 
in my definition, someone who is fully bilingual can carry a conversation from beginning to end in Spanish or in English completely. And if the speaker has to change languages mid-sentence, that to me, in the end, uh, spells that that person is not truly bilingual, because if they could, they would be able to finish their sentence in English or completely in Spanish. So I think uh, clearly a lot of work needs to be done in spreading this message of English to uh, educators and parents. Bilingual education advocates are going to, of course, object to your proposition. Just to clarify, because of, of course some people are going to ask themselves the question, is there anyone funding your research or your projects that has a vested interest in single language education? Are you receiving monies to espouse these opinions? Elena, I'm actually not receiving a single penny for this. In fact, if anything, uh, a lot of my money has gone into uh, collecting this data, and I'm actually uh, pouring out money to get these numbers rather than receiving any uh, assistance of any kind from any group, any special interest group, any advocacy group. Um, this is something that I believe in my heart and soul. And ultimately, nothing would make me happier than to see Latino students get ahead. I don't want Latino students to go through what I went through. I mean, if I had, if I were to have children of my own, I would, I would bring them up knowing, you know, English first, then maybe Spanish, but English first, and a master of English first. Um, I don't have children, but I, I certainly would do that if I did. And I think that ultimately, my work is intended to prevent students from going through those uh, truly god awful experiences that I did, and so many years being spent in remedial English classes and not understanding words and feeling like I was, you know, the last student to turn in an assignment. It's truly a, a very, very uh, painful experience, and my, my research is aimed at preventing others from having that kind of uh, experience. As a matter of fact, in 2002, I joined the Peace Corps, and I was sent off to uh, Romania, uh, Moldova, which is between Romania and Ukraine. And part of the experience that I had there as a Peace Corps volunteer was to learn Romanian, which is the predominant language spoken in Moldova. And when I was over there, I was taking language courses uh, four or five days a week. And it was incredibly difficult to learn Romanian. And so I, I understood firsthand what it's like for an immigrant to come to this country. We were in you know, ourselves more or less immigrants in Moldova as Americans we were a minority, and so I, I got to learn what it's like to learn a new language and what it's like to struggle. You know, I would call home literally in tears because I, I felt I was the last one to uh, be able to uh, pick up these words in our language training classes, and I felt like everyone was getting it but me. So I understood what it's like. I got to experience psychologically firsthand what it's like for an immigrant to come to the United States and feeling like they're at a disadvantage because, because they don't speak the language. And those experiences in the Peace Corps were very powerful for me because it, they just deepened my sympathy that much for, more for immigrant populations. And so truly my heart goes out to them. And that's ultimately why my book is dedicated to immigrants. Everyone who comes here trying to search for a better life, is those are the people to whom I have dedicated you know, my life's work. And if I can do anything to alleviate their suffering, if I can do anything to prevent them from having some of those painful experiences, then... I'll be a much happier person as a result. 
there are studies that indicate that children who study in more than one language at a time tend to learn more slowly than children who are studying the same subjects in only one language. There are also studies that indicate that it is much easier to learn language as a child and to learn to speak a language without an accent for physical, apparently, as well as linguistic reasons. What would you say, how would you respond to that? Are you aware of those? And does that change your opinion? Actually, I have read numerous studies that show benefits of various types in knowing more than one language. As I mentioned earlier in our conversation, populations in Europe all the time speak two, three, four languages. It's so common uh, for people in Europe to have to interface with people of uh, Germ you know, German, Italian, French, Portuguese descent, so they have to be able to quickly uh, code switch from one language to another. And certainly the lifestyle in Europe with so many little countries bunched together necessitates that. But here in the United States, the situation, is, the situation is a little bit different. The only two countries that we have contiguously along our borders are Canada and Mexico. Now, we do have a very heterogeneous population in the United States, but two things are, are important to point out. As I mentioned earlier, I am in, in full agreement that I think children should learn more than one language, but English should always come first. As long as they have that foundation of English with absolutely as much of vocabulary as, they can, as their little brains can assimilate, then I think then parents can move on to a secondary language. If they want to teach their child Spanish, Italian, French, I think that's great. And like you said, and I agree, and all the studies support this, when children are young, they can assimilate a second or third language. And I actually know some people who are raising their children that way, and they're very happy of, of, uh, as a result of having their ch child learn those languages. But I think that, again, it's the order that's important. Where are we living in the United States? Where's, you know, what language is most of the instruction going to be in English? You know, what is going to be the predominant language that people in this country speak English? So I think that pr the priority is to learn English first. Have parents teach their children English first, then move on. You know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with hiring a private tutor. As a matter of fact, when I came back from the Peace Corps, uh, I actually hired uh, a Romanian family to uh, teach me Romanian. I thought it was hugely rewarding. And I've actually read one study that shows that the rate of Alzheimer's is actually lower among people who switch between one language and another. I guess their brains are kept more active as a result. Of course, the study didn't, didn't uh, talk about what sort of uh, work those people are doing. Perhaps it was just the field of work that was keeping their brains more active, not necessarily the fact that they changed from one language to another in their daily jobs. But I think that children should be exposed to other cultures, other languages, other types of music, other types of food. I think it's not just language. I think it's cultures in general. And I think it's, it's important to be able to expose young people to different uh, nationalities and understand what's important in other countries and learn their histories, learn their cultures, learn their languages, learn about their foods, their customs, their holidays. But I think that that should be secondary to a very thorough American identification and an assimilation into an American society. I think that living in California gives a lot of people a very distorted sense about the United States. I have traveled to other states in the United States, and the demographics are different. 
you know, in states such as Iowa, such as Wisconsin, those states are as white as the driven snow. And I think that Latino children, if they know Spanish first and English second, they're going to be at a disadvantage if they live in an area outside of Los Angeles or Miami or Chicago or, or New York City, those being the most uh, heterogeneous and the most multicultural cities of our nation. But I think if we're to raise young people who can live and work and study and thrive in any environment in the United States, then they have to have that English proficiency first, first and foremost. And then on top of that, they can study whatever language they want. Ernesto, you talk about something called selective cultural adoption, or SCA, in the book. Mm -hmm. What is that, and in what way does it help the educational process? SCA is a, is a term that I coined when I was writing the book. In the past, there were two camps, and there were, there were basically two sides to the whole debate on immigration. The one side, particularly on the right, said that all immigrants should come to the United States and go through the very same sort of factory approach to assimilation. They go in one end and come out the other, thoroughly whitewashed, thoroughly Americanized, uh, all looking and acting the same. The other side, coming more or less from the left, said that that approach was all wrong, that immigrants who come to the United States should preserve their language, should preserve their customs, should raise their children the way they were raised in their home countries, and they should honor their heritage, and they should remain apart, basically, from American society because it is the evil, imperialistic you know, uh, power that it has been, and so they have to preserve their culture away from all that. And I, said, I felt, as I was writing the manuscript, that both sides were wrong. I mean, in, in the end, I felt both sides were being short-sighted in their approach. Selective cultural adoption, for me, was a nice middle ground. I feel that Latinos in the United States should selectively adopt those things that are going to help them get ahead in the United States, such as mastery of the English language, such as uh, giving their children a college education, such as a love of reading, a love of learning, a sense of self-efficacy and self-reliance. On the other hand, I think Latinos should have every right to enjoy their cultural heritage. Um, I certainly have. You know, the, the trips to Mexico that I took were you know, very valuable to me in getting me in touch with my own roots. But it's a very personal journey. It's not something that you can really legislate from the universities, which is what's happening now and something that I have a, a really big issue with, which is these university departments that try to mandate students to uh, get in touch with their heritage and to see anyone who's white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant as some sort of evil, you know, culturally imperialistic power, which is simply not true. So when I wrote the book, I felt that Latinos should steer middle ground. That's not to say they should adopt everything about American culture. There are certainly things about American culture that I don't appreciate, such as the, the fascination of violence, uh, the sort of, um, you know, sort of cheapening of a lot of, uh, you know, family values that we've, you know, been having for the past 300 years. So there are things that I don't particularly like or adopt myself. So there are things that... Uh, just turn me off, and I, I think it's up to each one of us to find out what works. But in the end, it's not just finding the best of both cultures so much as finding out what's going to help Latinos get ahead in this, in this society. And ultimately, it's English, a college degree, and a, a love of learning, and being very industrious and hardworking. Those are the keys to success in the United States. But if they want to go home and listen to Latin music, that's their right. You know, that's their right to be Catholic. It's their right to listen to Mambo or, you know, 
salsa music or go salsa dancing, that, that's absolutely fine. But I think that they have to be very careful in selectively adopting those things that are going to help them get ahead. What would you share, what would you say to our listeners, many of whom are marketers, communicators, business owners, who are interested in reaching out to Latinos to promote their messages? You yourself, in in terms of promoting your book, are reaching out to Latino audiences, among other groups. And so you have learned some lessons along the way. What would you share with our listeners that might help them in their journey to reach Latinos in a culturally sensitive and effective way? I think that ultimately, you know, what I, what I said a little while ago, which is ultimately that my work is intended to prevent other Latinos from going through the pain that I went through or having the sort of painful experience that I did, I think if other educators and policymakers and parents and teachers are listening, I think that the best way they can approach the Latino population is from a stance of caring, to say, look, we want you to get ahead. This is why we're doing this. This is why we're bringing you this message. It may be a painful message to hear. It may be a politically incorrect message. It may be a message that no edu- you know, no uh, policymaker wants to sort of publicly say out loud, but there is truth. And, and I think that's why, you know, on my website, which is uh, www.ernestocaravantes.com, one of the things that you see right away is a passage from uh, the Gospel of John, which is, the truth shall set you free. And I think that once Latinos realize that this is, there's some truth to what they're hearing, they'll bring down their resistance. Because there is a lot of resistance. Uh, the Latino population, particularly the Mexican and Mexican-American populations in the United States, tend to be extremely defensive about culture. They feel that anything that is said... Uh, for instance, I'm sure you remember the hot water that Newt Gingrich got into when he said that bilingual education uh, ends up producing a kind of ghetto uh, talk or ghetto language. You know, and, of course, the Latino population was up in arms about that. And I think that if policymakers want to reach out to Hispanics, they have to reach out from a position of caring to say, look, we're doing this because we care. We care about you. We love you. We, we don't want you to you know, stay behind. We want you to get ahead and realize the American dream just like everybody else. What do your findings in relation to attitude towards education and language and dropout rates, what do these findings mean for marketers who are trying to find effective ways to segment the very large national Latino market so that they can implement their marketing campaigns and identify who to reach with what messages. In what ways does this affect them? Well, I think ultimately right now the, the marketing campaigns that are being geared towards Latinos have been with the entertainment industry, uh, the food industry, the movie industry. You know, there are some very popular uh, icons right now in the Latino uh, media, such as Jennifer Lopez, um, Ricky Martin and so on. But I think that ultimately if we're to reach the Latino population with the goal and purpose and mission to help them get ahead, I think that there has to be a shift away from the popular media uh, trying to target the Hispanic population and have 
more of an outreach effort from the colleges and universities. Let's face it, that's where they're behind, in education. And I think that if those in the media or those who are specializing in marketing uh, want to help the Hispanic population, I think a greater marketing effort from the, from the education sector uh, needs to reach out to this population. You know, I find it a little troubling uh, when certain Latino icons, such as Jennifer Lopez, uh, who was once asked, what did you get on your SAT? And she said, nail polish. And this is, of course, someone who's extremely popular in the Latino popula you know, with the Latino population in the United States. So she herself is throwing, you know, laughing off or just, you know, shrugging off education by saying that she got nail polish on her SATs. You know, and I think when Latinos read this, especially the young people who are so impressionable, say, look, if education didn't matter for her and she still made it, she, she became rich and famous, why can't I? So that's what I find, I think, a little bit upsetting, that even those that are Hispanic and have become famous in the United States are themselves not becoming the kind of role models that we need. And I think that's ultimately what's affecting Latino youth and education is the fact that they don't have role models. The role models they see are boxers. The role models they see are gangsters. Um, they don't really have educated Latinos to look up to. And when somebody like Jennifer Lopez makes that kind of comment, it only, I think, drives them deeper into the hole because then they really are, you know, letting go of education as any kind of priority. Thank you, Ernesto, for joining us today from California. Thank you so much, Elena. It was a pleasure for me to be able to speak to you today and to bring this message on to your, uh, to your show, to uh, Hispanic NPR. And to our audience, thank you for listening to author Ernesto Caravantes, who discussed his book, Clipping Their Own Wings, brought to you by Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com, providing you essential information on America's largest minority. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. For more information on how to reach Hispanics with marketing and public relations tools, visit our resources section at www.hispanicmpr.com. That's www.hispanicmpr.com.